Inside the Post-Dispatch. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Post-Dispatch. I'm Liz Miller, and I'm here with digital content editor and my co-host, Beth O'Malley. Hi, Liz. Hi, everybody. Hi, and we're excited today. Uh, It's officially fish fry season. Excuse me, I'm going to tumble over that every time I say fish fry season. But that means the return of our annual fish fry map, which is assembled by food writer Dan Neiman in partnership with designer and developer Josh Renaud. Beth, we both grew up in St. Louis. What are some of your earliest fish fry memories? Well, some of my earliest fish fry memories are of being in the basement of my... um, my school, the church that was with my school. I grew up Catholic. I went to St. Pius V. And I remember being in that basement and, you know, seeing friends and running around. And now when I go back there and walk in, um, you know, the, the smell of the fish, the the, the fry oil and, and seeing some of the people who are there, it, it just brings me right back to, to grade school and, and those memories. Catholics this time of year eat fish on Fridays. It's a tradition. And because St. Louis is, you know, stop me if you've heard (laughs) this before, a little bit Catholic, uh, we have a lot of churches that hold these fish fries. So for some people, they're mini reunions. They return to the church of their childhood. They go to the church that they currently go to. I mean, there are also people who aren't Catholic at all who go to enjoy the camaraderie and even, yes, enjoy the food. Um, (laughs) a A lot of the fish fries seem to have their own local spin on, um, you know, the traditional fish and fries, obviously. So uh, my family goes quite often to St. Agatha Church, which is Mm -hmm. a Polish church in the very southern part of Soulard. And there they have Polish imported beers and um, traditional Polish sides. A lot of cabbage is used, (laughs) apparently, in the preparation. We really enjoy it. And... You know, we've also been to Holy Trinity Serbian Orthodox Church, which has a fish fry, and they, again, have their own twist on some of those dishes that you'd expect to find at a fish fry. What about what about you? Yeah, well, I also grew up in St. Louis, but I did not grow up Catholic, so I kind of have fish fry FOMO. I feel like I, you know, as a kid, always wanted to go to them, and so as an adult with friends in high school and in college, we would explore different um, churches, VFW halls, you know, uh, Lions Clubs around the city. And um, I think I really connected more than even the food, which is delicious, and before I could, you know, legally drink, with the sense of community and being able to explore these different, you know, tight-knit um, neighborhoods that maybe I was was familiar with, maybe I wasn't, um, but everyone could could get together and break bread or, I guess, fried fish, uh, <laughs> is the case <laughs> maybe. And um, and once I could drink, it really changes the landscape for you know a fish fry uh, dinner. <laughs> um, and to that point, uh, one of my favorite in town is St. Cecilia's in South City, uh, famous uh, for its very long wait times and lines, but just as famous for its delicious food. And um, they call it the the original Mexican fish fry. So you have to get the chili rellenos. I believe that's how you pronounce it. And you can order only order one per person. That is how coveted these delicious poblano peppers filled with this oozing cheese are. Uh, they also have sides like um, rice, refried beans. You can get chips and salsa. But they have the fried jack salmon, the mac and cheese, the French fries that people aso- associate with fish fries in St. Louis. Um, I think one of my favorite parts of St. Cecilia's, though, is, and I know how weird this sounds, the wait. 
waiting in line with a giant margarita and just like kind of, you know, chatting with neighbors, strangers next to you with your friends, catching up with them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, I look forward to that part as much as I do the food. It's definitely a like, you cannot have any other plans. You just have to let the night take you where it's going to take you. The yes. line take you where it's going to take you. Um, I have definitely, you know, it can snake through depending on the weather all outside of the church and the school and uh, into the parish. I have drank margarita, which feels really sacrilegious inside the actual parish. The line (laughs) then snakes into like a gymnasium area. Um, But again, it's just a really good time. And uh, you're able to connect with not just your friends, but I mean, I have bought beer from, you know, honestly, they're teenagers, but I assume the teenagers of parishioners. Uh, And nothing to me feels quite so St. Louis as, you know, drinking a beer in a church. I don't know why I can't explain this, but. So when my family was at St. Agatha's one year, the priest had just come over from Poland and he was talking to us a little bit about his plans for the parish. And he said, uh, we're in fairly heavily accented English, you know, we're not going to be able to sell beer anymore at the fish fries and my family oh, no. looked at right my family <laughs> looked at him and we were like why would you not sell beer and he said well it is lent after yeah. all and valid ca- right catholics are um part of the lent is a sacrifice where a lot of catholics give something up um, and for some people that is candy or desserts sweets other people it's it's alcohol it's beer or wine so we kind of said, well, we can't argue with that. You know, <laughs> yes, it is Lent, um, but we have returned several times since then. And every time there is still imported Polish beer for sale. So I don't think his plan played out very well among the parishioners. I'm going to have to imagine, you know, these fish fries uh, support whatever community center you're, or, you know, community uh, landmark place that you're enjoying them at. And you have to imagine that those alcohol sales are contributing a significant amount of that income during fish fry season. So uh, if we if we can't promote having a beer, you know, promote the extra money that it donates to <laughs> whatever right. institution you're yeah, dining it, at. It is a great way to support local parishes or other groups where the fish fries are held. And on that note, um, one more. I have one more fish fry that oh, I'd yeah. love to chat about. So uh, when I, for years and years, I was vegan. It's also been years and years since I was vegan. Um, and there was an overlap with that when I lived in my early 20s in the Central West End on Waterman Boulevard, uh, which is where I first learned of the unfish fry. So for folks who maybe don't eat uh, as much meat, but are, are, who are vegetarian or vegan, don't consume any meat or animal products, um, the unfish fry is for you. And it's back this year on April 1st, I believe. And the menu is uh, really, really fun. It's a little bit, again, um, offbeat from what you'd expect from a very traditional fish fry menu. But they have delicious homemade falafel, hummus with pita, veggie chili, just really, really hearty, still, you know, uh, transitional winter to spring foods. Um, but ones made without animals or animal products. And I'm so sorry, Liz. I may have missed it. Where was that again? (laughs) I probably didn't say it. So the Unfish Fry is at the uh, First Unitarian Church of St. Louis, and that's basically the intersection of Waterman Boulevard and Kings Highway. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Yeah, fun one. So a lot of options. And then again, all of those are um, available to explore and learn more about at stltoday.com slash fishfry. Yeah, and if you uh, don't want to get out on Friday, you know, sometimes you get home and you're like, ugh, no, or you want to have fish on more days than just Friday, 
Food writer Dan Neiman has uh, created some recipes or tested some recipes and picked the best ones. We spoke with Dan over Zoom yesterday to learn more and um, to learn more as well about the fish fry map and how he comes up with it. So we hope you enjoy that conversation coming up right now. Welcome, Dan. Uh, Beth and I are so excited to have you on the podcast. We were actually just chatting about our own personal experiences going to fish fries in St. Louis. Uh, We both grew up here, but Beth grew up Catholic and I did not. And so, you know, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background before we jump into fish fries around town and then obviously your great fish fry recipes. I'm not Catholic either, uh, but Cincinnati is a very German, very Catholic town on a river uh, in the Midwest with uh, a a large German population uh, and a slavish devotion to a baseball team. So... I sort of know the whole St. Louis culture, but in I've never seen as many fish fries, even in Cincinnati, as there are here. It's here we have more than a hundred, uh, well, more than a hundred at the moment, uh, fish fries going around in town uh, through Lent. And Dan, how do you know how many fish fries we have here in town? Because I contact every church and every Elks Club and every VFW post and every American Legion post. Uh, that has had fish fries in the past. And I say, are you guys having a fish fry this year? Uh, and usually it's, it's, it's yes, this year still there's still some COVID uh, remnants. So uh, a couple of years ago, we had 160 and this year we're down to uh, a little under 110. But I, and, do, I do the legwork. And those fish fries are all published on a map that people can use to either find a fish fry near their house or explore a new part of town. And that map is at stltoday.com slash fish fry. I recommend you using it. I recommend you using it because there was a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but it, it pays off. Oh, it does. It does. We get people just love it. I, I think I highly recommend it. Uh, if, if you love fish fries, we'll tell you where to go. That's not and bad. one reason why we published that map this time of year is because During Lent, uh, just about every Catholic church in the area has a weekly fish fry on Fridays. Um, Well, let's say a lot of them. uh, Okay, a lot of them. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Catholics are asked to abstain from eating meat, uh, specifically the meat of warm-blooded animals during Lent. It's one of the ways that Catholics sacrifice before Easter comes. On Fridays. um, On Fridays during Lent, sorry. Fridays. Uh, This used to be a year-round tradition for Catholics, but um, since basically the 1960s, it's become only on Fridays during Lent. There are other faiths that do this as well, but, you know, it's so tied to Catholic identity. And as Dan mentioned, part of St. Louis is we are a Catholic town and we all love our fish fries. Yeah, and Um, I should point out that, that lots of churches that aren't Catholic are also holding them. Yes, and there are the, yeah. there are you can find a fish fry year round, especially at places like veterans halls or uh, rotaries, local clubs like that. Uh, but the yeah, map, but, is but other other churches, other churches have them too. Yes, even the Unitarians have a vegetarian fish fry. Dan, you don't go to a lot of fish fries. I, I don't. Uh, this is my secret, so let's not tell anyone except people listening to this podcast. Uh, I, uh, it's, I have nothing against fried fish. In fact, I, I quite love fried fish, but, uh, something like 15 years ago, 
uh, a doctor said, gosh, your triglyceride levels are high. Uh, maybe you should stop eating fried fish and other fried uh, foods. So I, I actually try to eat as little fried food as possible. I have been to uh, at least one fish fry in St. Louis. And by at least one, I mean one. Uh, and it was great. It was, <laughs> it was wonderful. I love fried fish. Um, and it was a good time. There's, they had a large uh, segment of the community there and everyone was just sort of hanging out and enjoying themselves. But I don't, I, think, I don't typically go to them. I only write about them. Well, I would say those are some very good reasons for not having attended a lot of fish fries around town. Um, but you have been working very hard on fish fry recipes for readers. When does that feature publish and what can readers expect? It actually, it actually, uh, it actually publishes today. Okay, awesome. Well, you mentioned, in, um, obviously, in the, the feature, you have the recipe uh, for a couple of recipes, including for cod and in the batter for that, I believe. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you use beer. And I was curious if it's uh, ale or lager or if it matters. Well, it, of course, it'll matter with the taste. The The reason for using beer, and, and I will I have to credit J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, the uh, sort of guru of science uh, food writing. His idea is to make the batter lighter, you want to infuse it with with air or at least carbon dioxide. So he puts beer or uh, you can use soda water in and the bubbles in the beer and the soda water actually make the batter lighter when you fry it the uh i, I used uh i, I used a lager you want to you want a mild tasting uh you want a mild tasting beer you don't want to overpower the fish with something strong like an ale i actually use stag uh because oh, nice. i don't know i'm in i'm in st louis and i, I happen to like stag <laughs> So you're saying uh, that a, a it, also, it also makes for a good, I'm sorry, but Beth. Go right ahead. Oh, it, it, I, I think it makes a good, it makes a beer batter. Good. It makes a good beer batter. Um, and you, you don't want, it's, it's mild. Uh, I would use what I would use what they call an American lager. So uh, Budweiser or Stag or PBR or Coors or anything like that. We'll, we'll do fine. Nice. So I think uh, Beth was saying a bush, right? Like you got to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Bush, bush would be great. Great. Finally, uh, a use, I, finally a use for it. Oh, wow. That's, oh, that's fire. Let's cut, that. let's cut that one out. Uh. <laughs> no, we'll keep that one. We'll keep that one. And in your recipe feature uh, publishing today, you also have some side options, um, you know, popular sides, I should say, yeah. side dishes served with, um, with cod and the catfish. So tell us about those. Well, you, you can't have a fish fry without, without fries. Otherwise, it'd just be a fish. That doesn't make sense. You, you can't have a fish fry without fries. Fries help make a fish fry. So I do have a recipe for French fries. Uh, and of course, I, we've, I've written about this before, but the secret of making good crispy French fries is to fry them twice. You fry them about 325 for several minutes and that cooks them all the way through. Take them out of the oil, let them cool off a bit and then fry them again at 375. I also have a recipe for hush puppies, which I, um, I, I really like this recipe. It's from Martha Stewart of all people. Uh, but you know how I, hush puppies, you generally think of them as being kind of heavy and dense and the ones that she makes are uh, are very, very light. And the secret is she uses both baking powder and baking soda in it. And that that's the same idea as the the bubbles in the in the beer batter. It creates carbon dioxide and it makes them lighter and fluffier. And they're they're really, they're really good. 
Um, I, I recommend them. If you, if you like to make, if you like hush puppies, try my recipe, which is actually Martha Stewart's recipe. Amy Bertrand, who is your editor, mentioned to yes. me this morning that she cooked the hush puppies and she thought they were some of the best she's ever had. She told me that too. Uh, and I'm glad because my whole purpose is to please Amy Bertrand, my editor. <laughs> That's a good answer. That is my goal. That is my goal in life. I feel like hush puppies are an they don't get enough credit. We don't talk about them enough. Maybe this is a regional thing. Maybe that's not true if you live in other parts of the country. Um, but I'm super excited to have a hush puppy recipe that has been tested and has the Amy Bertrand stamp of approval. <laughs> yeah, I take I take Amy's word over mine for these, but these are very good. Uh, I I lived in the South for almost 30 years, so I had a lot of hush puppies. Are hush puppies not uh, so much a thing in the Midwest? I think they are, but not to the degree that you would find them in other parts of the country. Um, and yeah. maybe to your point, you know, they, they're Southern, but they also are a popular pair with seafood. And we just being in the Midwest, you know, we don't have, aside from fish fry season, that many times of the year where fish is center stage on menus. You know, we're more of a beef and pork <laughs> country. Yeah. Well, of course, um, you can eat hush puppies with beef and pork, too. I think we should start a hush puppy movement. Yeah. I, I will have to say I'm not the biggest fan of hush puppies and you can both beat up on me all you want, but you have other good qualities too. (laughs) (laughs) They're just not, um, you know, when I think of a fish fry, hush puppy is not always a side that I think of, but coleslaw certainly is. And I, funny you should mention that because I do also have a coleslaw recipe. It's, it's very standard. It's, it's just. Um, cabbage and shredded carrots and mayonnaise. Not much mayonnaise. I don't. I'm not a big mayo fan in my coleslaw. I don't like the vinegary coleslaw, but I I like my coleslaw to be cabbage forward. Uh, and the recipe I, I provided is there's a little bit of mustard in it, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of vinegar. Uh, but it's it's really it's coleslaw is all about the cabbage. What a fun recipe feature! I can't wait to read it. Well, where where fried food is involved, it's always exciting even if I can't eat it. (laughs) I love that. Well, and Dan, tell us uh, what else do you have coming up? Anything that you're working on now or cooking up in the kitchen? You're wearing an apron currently uh, for future issues. Yeah. Well, actually uh, for next week, I'm no, for two weeks next week, I'm I'm writing about Hamantaschen, which is of course the uh, the three cornered cookie uh, for, for Purim fruit filled, Mm -hmm or poppy seed filled three quarter cookie for, for quorum. And the week after that, uh, I'm doing a, uh, article about Ukrainian food for obvious reasons. Nice. Yeah. And that's what I'm working on right now. Ukrainian food. Cool. So what does that look like? I don't want to spoil anything, but you know, maybe give, can you give us any teasers? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, borscht, uh, and apparently in Ukraine, they don't call it borscht. They call it borscht. So I'm making borscht. I'm making Ukrainian crepes. I'm making Ukrainian, uh, oh, chicken Kiev, of course, mm-hmm. Kiev. That's a popular Ukrainian dish. And another one I can't think of at the moment. Is chicken <laughs> Kiev the butter? It's like a lot of butter in chicken Kiev, yes or no? It's uh, it's some butter, yes. Yeah, inside, it's stuffed stuffed inside the chicken breast. or It's actually chicken breast is folded over and it's fried. And so when you cut into it, it's herbed butter comes pouring out. Uh, I'm going to use tarragon for mine because first Ooh. there is such a thing as Russian tarragon, uh, which translates to also Ukrainian tarragon. 
and I love tarragon with chicken. You could also use chives or thyme or rosemary. Wow. Well, those are two more recipe features we'll definitely look forward to reading soon. Well, I know our readers love it. We hear feedback all the time about how valuable it is to have those um, tested, truly tested and vetted recipes. I know you put a lot of work and time, um, not just into the creative sort of assembling of these menus, but truly again, into the testing of the recipes so that they uh, work for readers, hopefully at home every time. Um, uh, you know, what does it mean to you to be able to do that type of work and to share those recipes with readers? Well, uh, I, I don't know what life would be like having a, a real job because <laughs> This is, this is, I get to cook. I love to cook and uh, it's, it's work, but it's, it's fun work. It's, it's creative to me just to, to cook. And I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to do this every week. Thanks again to Dan Neiman for joining us to chat about fish fries. We look forward to having Dan back on the podcast soon. And up next, I'm really excited about this conversation. We're going to be talking to education reporter Blythe Bernhard about her recent feature on the history, legacy, and future of the school desegregation program in St. Louis City and St. Louis County, which is marking its 50th anniversary this year. Blythe Bernhard recently wrote about the 50th anniversary of the local school desegregation agreement. Blythe, to start this conversation, please tell us a little bit about your career at the Post-Dispatch. Sure. I came to the Post-Dispatch in 2007 as a health reporter, and three years ago I switched beats, and I've been loving the education beat, the school's beat, ever since. Great. And tell us more about the, the story you recently wrote. So we knew that this anniversary was here um, in 2022, 50th anniversary of the lawsuit that started, that led to the desegregation program in our schools that's commonly known as VIC. And we wanted to see what the impact has been over the decades. Our schools more integrated? Are they more segregated? Are they the same? And uh, what's happened to the kids who, who've been through it? Um, and then as the program winds down, where do we go from here? What does the future hold? Are you going to be writing more stories about um, the voluntary interdistrict? Oh, dear, I have to look at my note again. Where did it go? Oh. Voluntary Interdistrict Choice Corporation, VIC, program, um, as you said, it, it's ending. Uh, when does it end? So the last students <clears throat> will be accepted into VIC in the 2024 school year. Sorry, 2023-2024 school year. And... But if you're in the program already, you'll be, uh, you, you can see it through. So I think the last students would be graduating in 2037, 2038. Wow. Okay. So it's going to continue for a while, but no one else can sign up for it. It's going to continue for a while. It won't be accepting any new students in a couple of years. And the, so the, as kids graduate, the numbers will just be dwindling. Right. Gradually. And they already are... <clears throat> pretty lower, a lot lower from when the program first began. 
So the program reached its height around 1999, 2000, when there were 14,000 black children from St. Louis City heading out to uh, suburban schools in the county. And another 1,500 white students from the county were coming into the city to attend magnet schools. Mm-hmm. Um, now there are, this year, there are about 3,000 black students heading to the county and less than 100 white students from the county coming into magnet schools. And those magnet schools um, are across the city. Um, my son, actually, he's in high school now, but he attended magnet schools since pre-kindergarten, and we live in the city. So I'm pretty familiar with that program. But basically, magnet schools are uh, St. Louis City public schools that are intended to draw students from the county. So they have maybe a specialized um, education curriculum, or they serve specific uh, groups of students, like gifted students. Uh, Will those continue to exist? So that's a really good question. They won't have to legally anymore because the the creation of the magnet schools was part of this legal settlement that created the desegregation program. But the magnet schools, part of it never really lived up to the promise. Um, they never did attract the numbers of white kids that would make it a fair balance, mm-hmm. a fair equation for St. Louis public schools. Um, and in the meantime, I think at least half of St. Louis public schools are now magnet schools. So it kind of defeats the purpose of, of a magnet school when, when most <laughs> schools are magnets. Um, and so St. Louis public schools, in effect, is busing their own kids all over the city. And it's just an incredibly inefficient system we have now. So I think, and the story mentions this, that there's a trend toward the importance of recognizing the importance of the neighborhood school and having a school in the community that neighbors can support, the community can support, kids can walk to school. Um, I mean, that, that, was, that was always the dream, right? The, mm-hmm. the great quality school in your own neighborhood. Um, so I think we will see a shift away from from magnet schools now i they're not all going to shut down and some of them are incredibly successful right and like i was going to say so that's where we are now and kind of the legacy um, of that program as it stands today but i'd love to go back a little bit and talk about the history of that initial lawsuit Uh, obviously the woman who you know started this off in the early 70s i think 1972 was the the year 73 maybe um was when the lawsuit was filed and you mentioned you know having these neighborhood schools that are within walking distance that create pride in our community right growing up my mom grew up in st louis city and she attended scruggs school which is i believe it's what it's now a uh church but it was for many years an elementary school before it closed and she had she remembers that that pride in walking to school you know i grew up in st louis county i couldn't walk to school it would be a death hazard uh in the suburbs <laughs> to try to walk to school uh but whether you're walking or again like you're saying it's just in the neighborhood and a source of community pride um my feel my my feeling in reading your story was that that was what 
um, the goal was maybe initially, uh, and you know, there was this desire with the lawsuit to say, okay, well, if we can't have that, then we, our children deserve the same education. Is that, does that sound right? Tell us a little bit about that history. Right. So Minnie Liddell is the mother who was fighting for equality in schools for her children. Her, her young sons were being bused um, to all black schools um, and these schools got the hand-me-downs from the white schools. They got the hand-me-down books, um, their buildings were crumbling, they got the most inexperienced teachers, they just were unequal in every way. So Minnie Liddell's original fight was to desegregate SLPS, to desegregate the city schools and make make the funding and resources equal just within that district. Now, the NAACP at one point got involved and said, well, you know, county districts are, county municipalities and districts are, are partially responsible for this too because we've had white flight. And so the, these inequalities are not just, you know, a problem in the city. So they need to be held responsible for that as well. So then this idea of busing from city to county got started. Minnie Liddell originally was resistant because that's not what she wanted. She, you know, wanted great schools for everybody where they live. But she said, well, you know, this cannot all be for naught. We, we need a victory. Um, is it, if this is the way it has to be, then, then, then let's do it. Um, but remember, the original agreement had three, three prongs. It had um, sending city kids out to the county. It had sending county kids into the city, so building up these magnet programs. Mm -hmm. The third prong was build up the city schools for the kids who weren't getting bused out to the county and who weren't going to magnet schools. So... That never really happened to the degree that it should have. On that third prong. On the third prong. And mm -hmm. so St. Louis Public Schools got the short end of the stick. And so they're losing all these kids to go outside their district. The state never wanted to fund the, the money to build up St. Louis Public Schools infrastructure and so it just it never you know it never balanced out financially and one of the things that uh, terry harris spoke about he's a graduate of the transfer program he now works for rockwood schools he basically said you know students who were in that program will tell you that the resources in county schools were much better but there's also a loss and i was struck also by heavenly larry a current student in this program who lives in the city and is educated in a county school. Um, and she said that there's a, a feeling of isolation um, in being part of this program. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. The, the people I talk to who are in the program and who are graduates of the program all have mixed feelings about it. They are grateful for the opportunities they had but they are really hesitant to say they got a quote-unquote better 
education. Right. Because they know what it means to go to a school like Sumner High School, proud tradition of, you know, black success and that legacy and having black teachers, having those role models. That's what they missed out on. But right, Terry Harris had, you know, the the academic and the athletic opportunities that he wouldn't wouldn't have had. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you ask them, well, would you have been a different person? Would you been, have been on a different trajectory? I think it's hard to say, but he would he turned it around. He said, "No, the question should be like, why did I have to go through that? Why did I have to get bust out? Why couldn't I have had these same opportunities in my own community?" Right. And so it's just a bittersweet experience. And there's also a feeling of when we were trying to decide where to send our son to school, you know, how do you as a parent know which school is going to be better for your child? And how can you, as an adult, look back and say, these are the specific ways that my education shaped me. I mean, it's such an unknown in so many ways. Any school can be a good school for any child if the school has the resources it needs. Right. And, you know, Terry Harris touched on that, too. He said he, you know, he started out in in city schools. And he said, you know, he was he was a good student. Mm -hmm. Sharonica Hardin-Bartley is the superintendent of University City. She went to Catholic schools and public schools in the city before going out to Rockwood. And she said the same thing. I was a great student in the city. I was a great student in the county. had great teachers in both places. Um, I think as a parent, you want to find the balance between what's best for your kid, but really what's best for all kids and how your decisions impact the community as a whole. And I think that that's what makes school choice so fraught. Definitely. Yeah. Well, and you talk about in the story, I think it was, um, forgive me, I do not remember his first name, um, LaPierre, who helped design from Washington University, um, what this program looked like or the shape of it. Uh, You know, he talked about how schools could never be the only piece of this that needed to change. And unfortunately, it was the piece that did change. And kind of I think what we're getting at here is that it put a lot on children. I mean, honestly, the people who lived through this, who have those bittersweet memories, were children at the time um, and are children still. Uh, and that's that's really challenging. I guess I'm, I'm teeing up uh, in a very <laughs> long-winded way to ask you, you know, as we look forward, and you mentioned obviously the fall of 2023 is going to be the last semester that students are enrolled in the program. You know, what is the future? Is there a hope that the future of this doesn't fall to children to have to live through to prove, you know, the, the right or the wrongs of these kind of programs? I think the hope for the future lies in the fact that we are having these questions about equity. Um, These conversations are amplified now more than ever before. And 
Bruce LaPierre, who designed, the attorney who designed the desegregation agreement, the whole plan, he did, he did say it just, it's, it had disappointing results. Some kids were helped for a time, but not enough. And the, the burden was borne by the victims, the victims of racism, the victims of segregation. And what do we owe those kids, whether it's a white flight reparation, um, whether it's a redistribution of funds, a change in the whole funding formula that funds schools through property taxes, local property taxes. It is the great inequity <laughs> of is the it, system. Is that inequity heightened in an area like St. Louis? Yes, because of the fragmentation. We have 30 some odd school districts in the city and county. That's not normal. So you have school districts that have carved out their tiny little population. You have school districts with three schools in them. What's the one in South County in the just below the, the city line? Bayless. No, Sorry, it's Hancock Place. Hancock oh, Place. Oh, sure, sure. You have teeny tiny school districts. That's not normal. So if we had a universal or, you know, community school district, it would probably be um, in the top 20 in size in the country. But you would have this pool of funds. You'd have a pool of property taxes to pull from. So your Sumner High School is getting the same thing that Eureka High School is getting. And 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 that's what I mean by by fragmentation. Um, we've created, you know, these little um, you know, little m- tiny countries, <laughs> you know, with yeah, municipalities. Municipalities, yeah, and school districts and it's 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 hoarding. It's resource hoarding. And the kids are paying for it. And that's something that you you wrote. We have a Facebook group dedicated to education that you are doing, by the way, a fabulous job. Thank posting you. Posting to. Chalk talk. <laughs> but um, you wrote in there that a judge back in 1983 threatened to create a region-wide school district, which would then, as you were saying, expand the tax base. I know that um, the aborted Better Together effort that started back in 2019, they skipped the issue of school districts completely. You know, they they took a look at governments in our area and said, let's try to merge some of these governments. And it seems like education is this third rail. Is there or has there been a recent effort to combine school districts and address some of this inequity? There's been talk of it, but you're right. It's never gotten any traction. People are very territorial. I mean, people move to Ladue for the schools. Right. They don't want to break that up. Um, 
when students from Normandy and Riverview Gardens 10 years ago were allowed to transfer out, they were met with hostility. Yes. Yes. We have pictures of, um, well, and, and quotes from people at meetings who are barely veiling their racial concerns about these children who are going to be taken riding on a bus for an hour and getting a better education. Right. I mean, people are concerned about their their property values. Um, and obviously racism plays a role. And they're worried about their test scores. Right. And property values. And they feel like there's a certain percentage of low-income students that they that are quote-unquote acceptable just up until it starts to affect those numbers and so so yes when the when the threat was to create one large school district that's when everybody got scared and the superintendent said okay okay we can <laughs> we can accept these small numbers of black children from the city Mm -hmm. Um, the goal was to reach 25% black students in every district I think about half of them ever reached that goal and today none of them have that number none of the participating school districts have 25% black children yeah and when we talk about the history of this and the legacy of it for what it means for St. Louisans all I can hear in these conversations is, you know, this is a, a problem born of racism, a problem propagated and maintained by racism. I don't see, you know, the connection from white flight in the 60s and 70s to now where we have school board meetings where people are, to Beth's point, you know, doing everything but saying, I'm concerned about my children going to school with more black children or children of color. And you mentioned earlier that maybe a solution to this, one of the many solutions to this could be reparations. I'm just curious, have you heard, are there real plans that people who, you know, would want to be able to support and contribute to solving this issue, again, very complicated issue, could look to? No. So, like you said earlier, we can we can integrate the schools or we could desegregate the schools um, we can bus kids all over the place, but that's a silo. As long as there's still discrimination in housing, the job market, I mean, every aspect of our lives, you know, the kids can't fix it. The kids can't break down these racist legacies. And so I don't think our community is ready to, ready to deal with it ready to reckon with our racist past and present. And certainly the state legislature, who really holds the purse strings, right? they certainly are not ready to deal with it or, or think they even need to. To pick up that thread, um, as you said, you started covering education about three years ago, and two years ago, the pandemic happened. Was it two years ago? Yeah, two years ago. <laughs> Time, what does about it mean? About years ago, approximately. With the onset of the pandemic, it seems like um, 
in our, in our Facebook group about education, a lot of the conversations have been about mask mandates or quarantine rules. And then there's the pro- the issue, I, I shouldn't say problem, but there's questions about how to teach history and how to teach the racism that exists throughout our history. Does it feel like the education beat has shifted from education? Like, do you feel you're, like you're back to covering healthcare again? <laughs> well, I yeah, I've said that we're all healthcare reporters <laughs> during the pandemic, but it's it's been more of a political shift. And so the masks, mm-hmm. um, vaccines, and, and yes, the teaching of social studies is all turned political. So people have taken sides on things that should not have sides. <laughs> there should not be sides to science. There should not be sides to, to history. So. Right. And has that been frustrating for you? Like, did you, would you rather be covering more uh, what's happening in the classroom and the education? Or is it just kind of, I'm going to go with the flow of the beat and see what happens? It's been incredibly frustrating. I, I never want to write a story about masks again, <laughs> but uh, I will. I'm going to be writing a story about Attorney General Schmidt's lawsuit against schools. Mm-hmm over their mask mandates, um, a follow-up story. Yet yeah, another follow-up story. <laughs> it, it, is, it is really frustrating, and, I, and I, I think it's getting better. I mean, we're getting into the classroom, which is where we want to be, talking to kids, talking to teachers. That's where I want to be. Yeah, yeah. And that's getting better. Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it kind of, you know, to connect this to uh, our previous conversation about the VIC program, the, when you when you look at how these politicized issues play out, the people who they do affect the most are students. They defer conversations from education. You know, students who aren't taught real history, true history, unvarnished history, are not set up for success in the future. You know, it's like I think about how we create these insular lives for ourselves on social media. It's like doing that to someone's education and worldview. Their ability to understand the world is compromised when it's not told truthfully. Um, And whether it's banning a book because you want to hide that truth or ignoring facts as they happened in history, um, it just hurts children. And it also hurts teachers who are put in the middle of a situation that they don't belong in the middle of. They are there to teach facts, history, uh, literature. Uh, And I would imagine as an education reporter, to your point, that has to be the you know the joy and the challenge of the beat is telling their stories and taking the politics out of our schools to be able to do that feels pretty critical right i think the the discussions around history and social studies right now stems from the idea that all children should see themselves reflected in those lessons and in in that literature and historically they haven't and so schools have been making a conscious effort for you know to develop these diversity you know inclusion programs to take a look at their libraries to take a look at their curriculum and and see if they're really serving all students and and then that's where the pushback comes from because you have 
white parents, white families who have always been, um, you know, the curriculum schools have been designed for them. And so they see sort of a threat here when, you know, it's not taking anything away, but we're just helping all kids feel like they're a part of a part of their school and you know teachers that look like them um books that show kids that look like them so i think uh that's that's how this all started but there's just there's a tension it's change change is hard yeah well the political climate has obviously accelerated maybe some of that right where we're having more contentious conversations than we would have maybe 20 years ago uh about these types of things maybe not um but again it kind of i think i keep coming back to thinking about how that affects children and then the future of what st louis looks like right like if we strive for greater equity for becoming a city that is more of a community uh the only way we do that is by what you're saying, is by making sure that every child in school sees themselves and feels supported. Uh, and it just, you know, for the for the purpose of political expediency or gain, it really feels like that's, again, back to the VIC program, who is suffering is children. Right. When the VIC program started, it started, you know, we're just busing kids out. Um, to go to these white schools without, you know, any professional development or training for the teachers, um, without any changes to to their resources or curriculum, you know, without dealing with the trauma that that causes to be removed from your community and sent someplace, again, because someone's idea that, that that's better for you. What does that tell a child? that the city 30 minutes away is better for you. I mean, what does that do to them? So we didn't deal with any of those questions when we just started busing kids. It was just like a numbers game, white and black. And now, again, this is one positive that's that's coming, um, is that these conversations are happening and it's a slow process but it's it's moving in a positive direction you mentioned earlier you know 30 some districts and so far we've only talked about public schools we're not even going to really touch private schools but there's a, a private school system kind of set up on top of that public school system that we could do an entirely new podcast on um how do you, as the education reporter, keep up with what's going on and know what's going on? And how do you decide what to cover? Well, I think social media has changed reporting in yeah. every way. I've never been so connected to sources. And I don't think you have to be a parent to be an education reporter. I do think it's an advantage um, because I am a <laughs> I'm a parent and I'm dealing with these issues on a daily basis and I'm also you know talking to I'm connected to other parents in that way but but the Facebook group like you mentioned Chalk mm-hmm. Talk 
um, you know, we have about 2,000 people in there. And so, I mean, Twitter, I mean, you're just, you're communicating with sources constantly. Mm -hmm. And so... And you're getting feedback as well. You're getting feedback. (laughs) Yeah, so even, you know, covering healthcare, I just never felt like I could really get to the bottom of things, could never get to the inside. And I've, you know, made strong relationships with um, the leaders in the school districts. um, And I think it's just a much more accessible beat. Um, And as far as the private schools go, maybe less so. They don't have to (laughs) share anything with us. Um, you mean like in terms of Sunshine Law, right? And one right. It's a government entity, basically, and right. private schools clearly are are not, and right. right. And so, yeah, I you know can't go to school for the private school board meetings. Um, but yeah, again, just being very, um, just being out there. I think being very visible mm-hmm. and accessible. Is, is huge. Yeah. And Blythe, you are from Las Vegas or you lived in Las Vegas previously? Before I'm, yeah, I grew up in Las Vegas. I went to school in California and then came to St. Louis. So I, if the answer to this is no, that's perfectly fine. But just uh, totally out of ignorance, I have a question. You know, when I, I don't think that any city has the exact same problems as another city. So it's not a one for one. But are there any models that if the the city was to look to say, okay, you know, this, her, her, I can't even say the word, this gigantic undertaking, Mm -hmm. if they were to to do this and try to say, okay, we want to create more equity or we want to create, to your point, sort of more of a community approach to schooling um, in a perfect world, does, does that model exist? Certainly there are large districts that cover huge geographic regions like Los Angeles Unified School District, um, New York City Schools. These are all Chicago. They all have one school district. And obviously there are negatives and downsides (laughs) to having giant organizations, bureaucracies. Um, On the other hand, like we're saying, uh, you know, perhaps you can reach... Mm, you can get closer to equity financially. Um, I think it's worth exploring. And the Catholic school system in in St. Louis is doing this right now. They're going through a reorganization where they're saying, we need to look at schools differently. We need to um, not be parochial and realize that we we all share a common mission. We need to stop being competitive and start start being cooperative because this is not viable long term having 200 tiny schools each with its own principal and secretary and gym coach. It's just this is not going to sustain us. I mean yeah. These are very painful conversations, but they have to be made. And people are, not only are people moving westward, we're, people are just having fewer babies and mm-hmm. birth rates are down. And 
for the Catholic schools, baptism rates are down. Um, and so they are having this tough conversation for the, over the next year about what should education look like. And I think that the public schools could do the same. Will they? Probably not. Like I said, there's just, there's a lot of um, territorial feelings. There's a lot of pride in your schools, which is great. Yeah, you see alumni networks stand up and, and speak up when, a, you know, the city says we might need to close certain right. schools. And there, there is so much pride in where you went to school. Right. Yeah, but I wonder if those, how many of those students from schools closing in the city still live in the city or if they've chosen to send their children to those schools and that's really where the challenge is is that yeah. we can have pride in something but it won't sustain it and to sustain it does require investment and does require commitment and that is where I think we've fallen off um, one of the many places we've fallen off um, in St. Louis City. Any other thoughts kind of I guess maybe closing thoughts. We've been talking for a while and I know we could talk for a while longer, but. Yeah, I could talk all day. (laughs) I just, yeah, you know, we should always remember that, that it is about the children and what's best for children. And I think ultimately everybody wants the same thing. We just have different ideas about how to get there. Right. That's where the problem is. <laughs> yeah. well, That's your, where the problem is. The schools is. you mentioned earlier, Blake, you know, L.A., Chicago, New York, are in certainly cities, uh, but moreover states that have mm-hmm. very different political, um, large po- from a, like a larger population standpoint views than the state of Missouri. Now, that it's not dissimilar, perhaps, from the... Uh, prevailing politics um, in the city of St. Louis. But I do wonder, again, to get back to that state level, if we were to have more, I don't even, not just funding, but acknowledgement of these challenges and why they are so critical um, to addressing in, you know, the state's biggest city uh, and why the future of this, not just this, you know, the state's biggest city, but the state is intertwined with solving this problem. Schools are asked to solve all of society's problems, and, and that's not fair, and they can't. And the problem is poverty, and that needs to be dealt with before we can even talk about quality of schools. Um, you know, schools are increasingly burdened mm-hmm. with providing services that they never did before. I mean, when schools are providing job-seeking services, resources for parents, um, you know, they're providing clothes, food, shelter for homeless students. Yeah. And students are coming in with all kinds of trauma and with PTSD, some of them. I mean, these are, these are, societal issues that cannot that we cannot place entirely on schools and on teachers they're not miracle workers so i'm sure that we will have you back on the podcast i would love that yay (laughs) um 
Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, we really, really enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything else? Do you have anything that you're working on upcoming that you'd like to uh, chat about or maybe even put out to, to readers or listeners, you know, questions you might have to help inform future reporting? My next story will be about the reorganization of the archdiocese and its Catholic schools. And so I am looking to talk to alumni, parents, students, anyone about their concerns. Is this Catholic grade over the process. schools mainly? Mainly Catholic grade schools. Okay. Um, but then there are some high schools that are in the archdi- under the archdiocese, like Rosati Kane, Bishop de Berg get a hold of you yeah or any parishioner really because there's the um the leaders in the archdiocese are saying that this process will impact every single catholic in st louis bold statement and uh in a sacrificial way huh meaning we will all need to think about how uh how you can commit and change to provide for long-term future success. I feel like we inadvertently gave our podcast this week a theme <laughs> of Catholicism and sacrifice. We started with fish fries at the top of the show with Dan Neiman. Um, and obviously they're not only at Catholic churches, but very, very popular. And here we are. Here we are wrapping more up sacrifice. with more sacrifice. Um, but if you have a, if you want to get a hold of Blythe, I think the best way to do that uh, over the podcast is uh, go to our website, stltoday.com slash news tips, and you can fill out the form there. And Liz and I will make sure that Blythe gets the information. You can also find her on Twitter. Do you have? Yes, um, at Blythe Bernhard. Um I love news tips. (laughs) (laughs) And um, you can also email her. Yeah, bbernhard at post-dispatch.com. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Blythe. Talk to you soon. Thank you again to Blythe for coming on. I'm going to say this probably just about every week, but uh, we love all the reporters in the newsroom and Blythe works so hard to help our readers understand education. And Mm. education is one of those topics where it it feels like a nexus of so many other issues. So thank you so much. And speaking of other issues, we've come to the end of this podcast. (laughs) Um, Next week, we're going to have Robert Patrick on. He is a courts reporter who extensively covered the Pamela Hupp case from almost the time of the murder at Betsy Faria through the current day into the miniseries <laughs> and several books that have been written about the case. Uh, last week, I said that the miniseries was starting this week. I was wrong, and I apologize. It's starting next week on Tuesday, and we are very much looking forward to talking to Robert Patrick about this, this topic. I am. Yeah, I keep seeing uh, the chatter on Twitter about Renee Zellweger, and I am very excited to, once the show has actually debuted, hear what people have to say. Definitely. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you so much. Have a good week.